Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the No Silicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, August 16th, 2020, and this is show number 797. It is really super hot in California right now, so I might start talking really fast to get this recording done before I boil. It is 85 degrees Fahrenheit in my studio and 87 in Steve's. And that's just as we were starting to fire up all the processing power we can to get the live show going. Can't wait to see how hot it is by the time we finish. I did have my windows open, but you could hear road noise, birds, squirrels, and skateboarders. But uh, I decided to go ahead and close them, so wish me good luck here. This week's Chit Chat Across the Pond was an episode of Taming the Terminal, where Bart taught us even more about the terminal command TMUX. He finished up his three-part mini-series by first teaching us to string a whole bunch of commands together to create a TMUX session that's just the way we like it. He showed us how to, in one single command, open a session with the windows and panes split just the way we wanted them, with the commands running in the panes we wanted them to run in, and even with the prompt left waiting for us in the pane where we wanted it to be. Now, while learning to to string all these commands together was pretty cool, he then showed us how to quickly make this long command into a shell script that we can run at any time and not worry our pretty little heads about remembering all of these commands. If you'd like to listen to this episode, there are a lot of ways to do it. You can subscribe to the Taming the Terminal podcast in your podcatcher of choice, or you can pick it up in the Chit Chat Across the Pond feed in, again, in your podcatcher. Or you can simply download the Taming the Terminal book in the format of your choice at podfeed.com slash tttbook. Now, putting this episode out was a pretty interesting challenge now that it is a book. As you learned in last week's Chit Chat Across the Pond, Dr. Helma Vanderlinden automated the process of the book creation. But for me to push out the podcast episode into the feed, the web presence of Taming the Terminal installment has to exist first. So it's not a blog post anymore, but that document needs to exist on the web before I can push out the feed. But Helma Helma can't make that web presence exist till the audio file exists up on archive.org. But the Taming the Terminal audio file doesn't exist until I finish the Chit Chat Across the Pond version of the audio. You see, they have different intros and outros. And Steve creates the Taming the Terminal audio and puts it up on archive.org, so we had to back up and have him do all of that first. I have to say, I nearly lost what's left of my marbles trying to even figure out what logo went where. Now, the show notes for this episode are no longer a blog post, like I said. Each chapter in the book is actually is actually an anchor link within a single very long HTML file. That sounds dreadful, but it actually works beautifully because the chapter links are in the left sidebar and it makes you easy it makes it super easy to jump between chapters and the text looks beautiful there. So Hubbard created the HTML version of the book for me first so that the podcast feeds could point to it. And then tonight, after I go to sleep, and she's sure I won't be messing with anything, her automated processes will update all of the other versions, I think. Now, I honestly have no idea whether those with, say, the Apple Books version will get a notification that there's an update to their book. If you subscribe to the GitHub project, I have been led to believe that you'll get a notification, but I don't really know what that would look like either. I guess we'll all find out on Monday whether you get the book update or not. I thought it might be fun to pull back the curtain on how the magic happens after we stop recording the live show every Sunday night, because it's pretty geeky. 
Since this is a podcast for geeks, it seems like that might be interesting to you. I've never written the process down before, but I've done it so many times it just sort of flows out of my fingers. To set the stage, Steve broadcasts the live show to YouTube from his iMac using a tool called Mimo Live from Boinks. He's broadcasting video from my webcam and his, audio from my microphone and from my recording software, Hindenburg Journalist, and video of Hindenburg, just to give the live people something to watch as I'm doing the recordings. I send all of that to his Mimo Live from an installation of Mimo Live on my Mac. He's also broadcasting the live chat window on Discord. While he's doing all of that production, I'm recording the actual podcast using Hindenburg. Well, this is probably hard for you to picture in your head, and this isn't anything I haven't told you about before. But today I want to describe every single thing that happens from the minute I wave goodbye to the live audience until the podcast shows up in your feed. I have two little automator scripts I wrote, one called Live Show and the other one called Live Shows Over. The first one turns off all of the cloud service syncing that I normally run, like any backup functions or like Dropbox, OneDrive, Google Drive. And then it also launches all of the apps that I will need in order to run the live show and do the recording. After the live show, I run live shows over to turn all of those cloud services back on and to quit a few of the apps I use for the live show, but it leaves some of them on because I need them for the post-production of the podcast. Next up, Hindenburg Journalist has been happily recording in its native format, but I need to export the audio as an Apple lossless M4A file. I'm going to be doing some processing on the file, so I can't export into MP3 just yet. M4A is smaller than an uncompressed format like WAV or AIFF, but it is lossless and saves the all-important chapter marks for the NoSilicast. After exporting from Hindenburg, I usually sample the file a little bit to make sure I didn't, you know, mute a track so that there's something completely missing. It's not a full sampling, so problems do sometimes get past me, but I can live with that rare occurrence versus listening to an hour or longer show of myself yapping. I then upload the M4A file to a service called Auphonic. This service provides several functions for you, the most important of which is to level my audio and bring the audio up to the loudness standards. I pay for this service online because the desktop version doesn't preserve the chapter marks the way you like them. It then converts the audio to MP3 format. It also adds the album artwork to the file and then does the file transfer from its own servers over to Libsyn, which is yet another online service where I host the files. And that's where you're actually downloading them from when you get the podcast in your feed. When it's done doing these functions, Auphonic reveals a page to me with the waveform of the original audio and the waveform of the processed audio and a link where I can download the MP3. I think this uh, graphic is really mostly eye candy to see how much more even and what a better volume the audio files are, but I really love it. You can also play them from that window, but, you know, I don't really find that necessary. But it's a really cool feature. I then click the download button, and then the system preference app, Hazel, automatically takes the downloaded MP3 file out of my downloads folder and puts it into my NoSilicast audio folder on my Mac for the current year. I have another Hazel script that watches that folder, and when two weeks have passed, it copies the Hindenburg and downloaded MP3 to my Synology and removes them from my local drive. Before I added that automation, I was always running out of disk space because I'd, I'd forget to go move all the files off of my drive. Now, of course, after the Synology gets the file, Carbon Copy Cloner, running on a Mac on my network, moves a copy over to the Drobo as a backup. 
I write my blog posts in an app called MarsEdit throughout the week, and then I make one post with all of the week's links for the NoSilicast episode. I create this post before I go live. In order to get the links into MarsEdit for the blog posts, I use an automator quick action I wrote that copies the title and the URL and then formats it nicely so you see the title, but it's a clickable link to the podcast episode. And it's formatted as a heading four for easy navigation, especially for screen readers. The real backbone of a podcast is the RSS file, also known as the feed file. Without that feed file, this would just be audio in the internet and it would never get delivered to you in your podcatcher of choice. I use an app called Feeder to create the feed for you. Each episode is in what's called an item. The text in this item is what you see in your podcatcher if you look at the show notes. First, I copied the title of the episode from Mars Edit and I paste it in as the name of the episode into Feeder. Then I plop in a text expander snippet that gives me the beginning of an unordered bulleted list and all of the standard links at the end to things like Patreon and our Slack community and how to email me. That's how that shows up in your feed. Back in Mars Edit, I copy each of the URLs in the blog post for the episode, including their titles, one by one. That puts them all into my clipboard manager, copy and paste. I flip back over to Feeder, and with another text expander snippet, uh, I add list items to that unordered list I mentioned, and then I use copy and paste to paste them each into Feeder. So it is, it's kind of a bunch of copy, 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 and then I go over and I go paste, 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 paste. So it's not as bad as copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste. I'm betting there's a more efficient way to do what I just described, but I'll work on making that more automated another day. Now, Feeder needs to know where the enclosure file is, which in this case is the MP3 file I talked about earlier that I put up on Libsyn, or actually Alphonic put it on Libsyn for me. I have another text expander snippet that puts the URL over on Libsyn, puts in the URL over from Libsyn, but also adds a little bit of information on the front to a service called Blueberry. That gives me a little nicer view of the number of downloads than Libsyn does, and then the text expander snippet adds the podcast episode name, which is the date in a known and consistent format. It's important to have things like this automated, or you get kind of anarchy in your naming convention because you're, you're human and you might make mistakes. I make more than most, but I know enough to automate things so that you don't get as many mistakes as you would. In Feeder, next to the URL of the enclosure, there's a dropdown, and I choose Fetch Attributions from Web, so in, in this URL, all I've done is I've said, this is where I think the audio file is. When I choose fetch attributions from web, it looks at the URL I entered, figures out the file type for uh, the file type for me. In my case, it's usually audio slash MPEG. And then it finds the length of the file in bits. These two pieces of information have to be in the feed and feeder figures that out for me. Last week's show, for example, uh, in speaking of bits, last week's show was 52,060, I'm sorry, 52,063,241 bits. I thought you probably needed to know that. Anyway, if Feeder successfully finds that information and enters it for me, that does something else. It lets me know that the file has definitely arrived on Libsyn servers from Alphonic servers. I also use the file length and feeder to compare to the file size on my disk to make sure I upload it and link to the right file. It's not uncommon for me to somehow get mixed up on this part, so it's kind of a nice double check. If I see it says it's, uh, you know, 70 megabytes and it should have been 60 megabytes, then maybe it's not the right file. I also look at the information on the file on disk 
to find out how long the episode is in time. And I do that so that I can enter it in the episode duration over in Feeder. I do this for one listener who asked me to do it because he likes to sort his podcasts by how long they are. I sure hope he's still listening and he appreciates it. Actually, if anybody else does that, anybody else appreciates that you can see how long it is in time, that'd be interesting because I do that by hand. I should mention that Feeder can do the file transfer for you using its own built-in FTP client, and it can figure out the length and time of the file for you. But for the reasons I explained earlier, I do it all through Alphonic so that I get the benefits of that service. Finally, I enter the URL of the current blog post that doesn't exist yet, but will be generated by Mars Edit when it gets posted. This is another dodgy point I really should automate. I get lazy and I just type H, and Text Expander autofills the previous week's entry for the NoSillaCast. Now the URLs all end in slash nc-xxx, where the last digits are the episode number, so I just change the episode number. But what I often forget is that a little bit earlier in the URL is the year and month, and if I forget to change the month when it changes, then the URL won't work. But luckily, a gentleman named Tim McCoy is always standing by to let me know when I screw that up. All right, now it's time to finally finish up the blog post in Mars Edit. I use yet another text expander snippet to plop in the URL to play the podcast episode right from the web page in an HTML5 uh, HTML5 player, and I give you a downloadable link because some people just like to download them. I gotta tell you, you know, we're here to please. Now, this is a tricky text expander snippet, though, because I have one for Chit Chat Across the Pond and one for the NoSillaCast, and I sometimes get them mixed up, but don't worry. I always check it before I hit publish. At this point, I push the blog post as a draft from Mars Edit to WordPress on podfeet.com. I point to the NoSillaCast logo as a featured image, and I make sure it has the alt tags identifying it for screen readers. Then I do a preview from WordPress, and I scan the page for anything that looks dumb, like an image too big or a missing link. I also click the audio player to see if it not only plays, but it plays the right episode. If it doesn't play at all, this is usually an indication that I use the Chit Chat Across the Pond snippet instead of the NoSillaCast snippet, so it's got the right date, but it's got the wrong file extension, which means it won't find any file at all. Next, I go back to the draft post, and I scroll to the very bottom, and I watch the Grammarly plugin go to work finding typos. I bet you're surprised I run this since there are so often typos that simply get past me, but even Grammarly doesn't find everything. After it tells me I forgot nearly all of the Oxford commas and finds a few other typos, I run one last preview and then I hit the publish button. So now we've got the blog post. And once that finally exists, I can hit publish over in Feeder. At this instant, the podcast is live. And I really mean instant. I hit publish, I see a little progress thing, and then it's ready. It is totally done. There is no undo at this point. All I can do if I messed it up is redo the feed publication. If your podcatcher is quick about it, you'll get the messed up one well before I can fix a problem. That's just the name of the game. So immediately after publishing using Feeder, I launched the podcatcher Downcast for Mac. This is the fastest way for me to see that the podcast did download, and I can check that it's got chapter marks, and yet again, check to see if I actually uploaded the right episode. If all things went well, and 92.6% of the time they do go well, it's time to spam the internet. I open the blog page for the podcast, and I run another automator quick action that grabs the title and URL, but this time doesn't combine them into an HTML link. It puts the title followed by the URL. 
Then I open TweetBot for Mac to my PodFeed personality and I paste in the title and URL. I then simply drag the featured image from the blog post to the tweet and I hit send. I then flip to my Nocillacast account in TweetBot and I retweet the post PodFeed just made. You really don't need to follow the Nocillacast account because all it is is retweets of the podcast stuff PodFeed does. Then again, if you do that, just follow the Nocillacast account, you don't have to see photos of me and Steve giving our grandson a cake pop and just a little smidge of politics. Just your choice. Now I open Facebook to the Nocillacast community page and I paste in the same title and URL that I put in Twitter. I wait what seems like an interminable length of time for it to expose the featured image or not find the featured image, depending on its mood, and then I hit post. Then I hit the share button to share the same post to my personal Allison account on Facebook, where people seem to enjoy seeing them, seeing those. Or, you know, I don't know, maybe they're just trying to make me feel good by saying they like that I posted there. I'm not sure. Now it's time to hit our Slack community and paste in the same title and URL to the show announcements channel. I like that it's a separate channel so that if you don't want my spam, you don't have to subscribe to that channel. You can read all the fun ones like uh, the PBS channel and, and Security Bits and even Delete Me. That's a really fun channel. But if you want to get the show announcements, that's where you get them. There's one final step in the post-production. I need to charge the Patreon supporters. They pay, pay the bills around here. You know, Libsyn and Auphonic and Podfeed Hosting are not free, and neither are most of the apps I've described here. So you really should thank them for making all of this happen. In Patreon, I, I create a link-type post, and to fill it out, I go to the published blog post for the episode. I copy the URL and the title one by one from that page. And then I put feeder into its preview mode where all of the links look pretty. And it's kind of funny. I'm not looking at the HTML. I have to look at the pretty view and I select those and I copy all of those links. That puts all three of those pieces of information, the title, the URL, and all the links into copy and paste. Go back to the Patreon page. I use copy and paste to paint the links to the body, the title to the title. And finally, last, I put the blog post link to the link field. I do that last because Patreon makes my featured image logo huge on the page, and when it renders the link, I have to scroll a lot if I let it do that first. Finally, I check the little box that says Charge Patrons. Now, I hope you enjoyed learning everything I do in post-production for the NoSilicast. I'm kind of proud of how I do all of this, and I find it kind of amazing that I don't mess it up more often since there are so many moving parts and so many different applications and services that are involved. Guess how long it takes me to do all of this? Less than half an hour. Usually 15 minutes. I am a huge fan of the company Wise, and I've talked to you before about their inexpensive indoor webcams, their light bulbs, their outlet switches, their proximity sensors, and motion detectors. My house is literally littered with products made by Wise, and I haven't had to break the bank to enjoy all of these devices. But there's been one gap in their lineup of products, and that's an outdoor version of the WiseCam. Right now, there's a whole cottage industry built up about making cases for WiseCams so people can put them outside. My favorites are the ones that look like little birdhouse roofs. I watched a video by Wise CEO Yun Zhang where he explained that they could have easily taken their popular camera, sealed it in a plexiglass box, and put it up for sale. But they wanted to make their outdoor camera to be much more than an original WiseCam in a box. Well, that long-anticipated product is finally here, and they've called it the WiseCam Outdoor. 
indoor Wisecam is a white cube around two inches on a side. The Wisecam outdoor is much bigger at two and a quarter on a side. Now that doesn't sound that much bigger, but it's actually 42% bigger in volume. Don't worry, David, the math is in the show notes so you can check me. It's also much heavier than the indoor Wisecam. The outdoor cam has a large black convex circle on the front with a tiny lens embedded up near the top along with the motion sensor. Like the indoor version, the base is articulated so it can be tilted and rotated to your desired position. Unlike the indoor version where the base is part of the camera, on the outdoor version, the articulated base is actually removable and is held to the camera by a fairly powerful circular magnet. The Wisecam Outdoor is battery battery operated, so when you need to charge it, you simply pull it off its base, bring it inside, and plug it in via micro USB. The Wisecam Outdoor has two 2600 milliamp hour batteries, and they say they'll give you three to six months of battery life with normal use. With a battery operated camera, you can mount it positively anywhere. When you pull the camera off of its articulated base, you'll find a quarter 20 threaded hole for easy mounting to tripods. On the underside of the camera, you'll also find the pairing button and a slot for a micro SD card to record videos and photos local to the camera. The one thing I did not expect when I pre-ordered the Wisecam Outdoor was that it came with a base station, which you must connect to your router. The base station allows you to have up to four Wisecam Outdoors, or is that Wisecam's Outdoor? Anyway, four cameras connected to it over Wi-Fi. The base station has a couple of problems it solves. Wives says that the base station provides more reliable Wi-Fi range. They explain that with a long enough Ethernet cable, it allows you to get a better signal to the outdoor camera, which I suppose would be true. Now think about it. If you've got a mesh router system with LAN Ethernet ports on each unit, you can get the Wi-Fi signal even closer to the outdoor camera by choosing the closest mesh unit into which you would plug the base station. Now the base station does have another purpose, actually a couple other purposes, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. The Wise app walks you through the setup of the base station in a few simple steps. After plugging the base station into power and your router, you push a little button on the base station and it will give you a blue light and tell you verbally that it is connected. After it queries you to name your base station, you know what happens next, right? Of course, there's a firmware update. Now, I am a fan of IoT devices that have firmware updates, so I do them immediately, but you know, it's sort of like getting a remote control car for your birthday and then having to wait for the battery to charge before you can play with it. When you're done with the base station setup, it will give you an alarming screen that says, oh no, your base station isn't paired to a Wisecam Outdoor yet. Don't panic though, that same screen has a button to add a Wisecam Outdoor. The Wisecam Outdoor has a nearly invisible small white rubber door on the back. Inside this secret compartment, you'll find a physical on-off switch. You can use that if you don't trust software switches or you want to save battery and keep it turned off for a while. You've also got the micro USB charging port inside that little door. On the bottom of the camera, there's a very difficult to open micro SD card slot to save your video recordings and still images, as well as a tiny white sync button. When pressed, it will happily tell you pairing is in progress. While this type of operation is almost always fiddly in IoT land, mine paired nearly immediately to my base station and offered to let me name the camera. Once paired, it asks you if you want to share with a family member. Why, yes, I do, as a matter of fact. Wise makes it super easy to share individual devices with anyone you want. And I really, really like that. 
Maybe you want a neighbor to keep an eye on your backyard camera, but not your kitchen camera. Wise makes it so you can do that. Now, Steve and I, of course, have separate accounts, but we share all of the same cameras. Now, guess what you do after that? <laughs> yep, a firmware update to the camera. Again, I urge you to be happy that Wise is constantly doing these firmware updates. These updates are often feature updates, but having them stay secure is even more important. Once this setup is complete, you can simply walk around any old place outdoors within 300 feet line of sight of your base station, so obviously shorter if it's behind a wall, and then you can set the camera down and enjoy the fun. The app lets you talk through the camera to scare away the nighttime possums and record the skunks and other critters to the microSD card. Or you can simply listen if you want and take photos with the WiseCam Outdoor. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about the video and image quality of the camera because it's exactly like the indoor WiseCams that I've told you about before. Briefly, though, these cameras are 1080p, have motion detection, they allow you to talk to, through them so you can maybe scare away a burglar or annoy your pets. That's what we do with it. And uh, you can listen to what's going on near the camera, like I said. WiseCams have a 110-degree viewing angle, which has served us well indoors, but it's a little bit limiting in an outdoor camera. 180 degrees would have been nice. If you want to read up on the specs about the angle of view, the operating temperature, how many night vision LEDs it has, the camera, camera aperture, frame rate, and more, check out the full specs over at WISE.com. Now, you might be wondering whether this camera is too easy to steal since it's removable from its base. Here's a couple of things to think about. First of all, the WISECAM Outdoor plus the base station in the starter pack is a grand total of $50. When you're ready to buy another one, you don't need to buy another base station. So the camera alone is only $40. It's not a huge investment if somebody were to steal it. Secondly, the magnet that holds the camera to the base is really strong. When I first opened the box, I remembered hearing that there was a magnet holding the camera to the base, but it was so strong when I started pulling on it, I started doubting whether my memory was correct. Like maybe I'm going to break it if I pull on it. Now, once you're sure it's a magnet, it's not that hard to pull off, but I can imagine someone pulling and thinking, oh, shoot, I can't get this off. Now, if they were clever, I suppose they might try to pull the entire mounting base off the wall, but again, 40 bucks. Now, you might also think that a big drag is you would lose the video of the miscreant stealing your camera because they'd get the micro SD card as well. Guess what? All wise cams come with a free 14-day video recording in the cloud, so at the very least, you'd have a recording of the theft. But remember at the beginning I said that the base station had more than one purpose? If you put a memory card in the micro SD card on the base station, in the app you can tell the base station to keep a backup of all of your wise cams outdoor. I think that's super clever. And finally, if someone steals your wise cam outdoor, they can't enable it on their own account unless you remove it from yours. So that means they didn't even get something fun to play with. So the bottom line is that if an evil person steals your camera, they don't get a camera out of the deal. You get video of them stealing it, and you're only out 40 bucks to replace it. So that's a win-win-win. Now, I've talked about how you can yank the WiseCam Outdoor from its magnetic base to bring it inside and charge, but being removable means you can move the camera anywhere you want at any time. I've been playing around with setting it in between our citrus trees to try and catch my cats doing something silly as they play around in there. Your imagination can go wild with the fun things you can record. Maybe you feel the need to do a time lapse of a mushroom. The WiseCam Outdoor is the perfect tool for that. The base station for the WiseCam Outdoor has another big trick up its sleeve. 
it can create its own ad hoc network, which allows you to take your WiseCam outdoor away from your Wi-Fi, your home Wi-Fi. The base station will require power, of course, but you can plug that into a battery pack since it's USB powered. You do need to set up your WiseCam outdoor for travel mode before you leave your network. I found the setup to be a little bit fiddly, as these things often are. You press a button on the base station and announce it's changing. Actually, you double tap on the base station one and it announces that it's changing to travel mode. And then you connect your phone to the base station's Wi-Fi. The software tries to walk you through these steps methodically, and I'm quite skilled at this type of connection, and I think it took me three or four times before I got it to work. The base station creates the ad hoc network, but so does the camera, so I may have been connecting to the wrong one in some of those tests. In any case, once I had travel mode enabled, I was able to move the base station to an outdoor outlet for power, not connected to my network, and I could still play with the Wisecam outdoor all over my backyard without any problems at all. When I plugged the base station back into Ethernet on my router, the camera was back on my network with no faffing about getting it back connected. Now, you may be looking at the Wisecam Outdoor because of its resistance to weather conditions. I live in Southern California near the beach, so we basically get no weather at all. It rains maybe 15 inches a year, which I think most places they consider that spitting, not raining. The temperature normally idles around 72 degrees Fahrenheit most of the year with highs into the mid 80s, except today, of course, and the lows get into like the, you know, the 50s maybe. So we don't really have weather. In other words, I cannot personally vouch for the WiseCam Outdoors ability to withstand extreme weather conditions. However, if you want to learn about the testing they did, Wise did this fantastic video about it. The first nine minutes or so are super fun, showing them climbing into water fountains with it and such. But at nine minutes and 20 seconds into the video, the CEO, another guy whose name I wasn't able to find, they explained that they were ready for their beta testers at nine minutes and 20 seconds into the video. They sent out 200 beta test units to people from Arizona to Alaska, and those people tested it under extreme real-world conditions. The reason I believe them is that around 10 minutes into the video, they explained that while the weatherproofing was reported as working very well, the beta testers identified some issues where the seal around the bottom of the black circle in which the lenses contained had light leak and caused washed out imagery. They fixed the light leak problem, set out a new batch of test units, and eventually they got a 97% thumbs up from the beta testers to launch the product. Now, I couldn't go without any testing, so I put my Wisecam in the sink and I ran water over it while recording its view and I, then I tried it in my freezer with infrared mode on. This incredibly scientific and robust testing procedure gave me full confidence that the Wisecam Outdoor will work under the, uh, the uh, conditions within the IP65 specifications that Wise claims it has. Now, according to Wikipedia, IP code stands for Ingress Protection Code, where the first digit is the solid particle protection and the second digit is liquid ingress protection. Now, remember they said IP65, so the six is going to be the solid particles and the five is going to be the liquid ingress. Solid particle protection level six means no ingress of dust, complete protection against contact, dot, oh, sorry, complete protection against contact, dust tight. A vacuum must be applied. Test duration up to eight hours based on airflow. That sounds pretty good. The second test, uh, the second digit for liquid ingress means 
Water projected by a nozzle against enclosure from any direction shall have no harmful effects. Test duration is one minute per square meter for at least three minutes. Water volume, 12.5 liters per minute. Pressure, 30 kilopascals, I'm going to say. I think that was at 4.4 PSI at a distance of three meters or 9.8 feet. In other words, duck proof and water jet proof, but not submerge under waterproof. Finally, because I was an early access backer, my WiseCam Outdoor came with a hat. It's a black tri-cornered cowboy hat that fits snugly over the rectangular top with a small cutout for the lens area. It has no real functional purpose, except I suppose it might keep rain, snow, and dust off the camera. But with that IP65 level weather weatherproofing, I'm not sure that's necessary. But you know what? It's really adorable. Now, I thought I was super special getting the one with the hat. But then I looked on their website. They had 83,093 early access backers. Isn't that insane? It's little touches, though, like this hat that makes Wise such a beloved company. Wise is a company that keeps their users super engaged by being very honest and specific, uh, giving specific explanations of what they're doing. They do fun videos all the time where they even admit problems. They send out status updates on delivery of earlier, early adopter units. They're fun, and they're clearly enjoying what they're doing. Their beta test users are rabidly loyal to them, as you can imagine, and their early access backers, like me, are evangelists. Oh, and they make really stu good stuff at incredibly affordable prices. And don't forget, security expert Steve Gibson says they do security right. I think they've hit another home run with the WiseCam Outdoor, even though it's not HomeKit compatible, works with Google and that A-Lady, And uh, but I'm probably going to buy more of them. They're on pre-order right now, so put your order in if you want one, because they're sure to sell like hotcakes. Remember, Wise canceled their affiliate program, so you know I have no vested interest in this company. I simply love their products. Uh-oh, Wise just sent me a coupon for 20 bucks off their smart lock. I need to start working on a justification to convince Steve I need one for our second deadbolt door. Well, I'm sorry about this, but it's time for another pledge break from the bizarre mind of Frank Petrie. Good evening. I'm bored and sick of this job. Tonight's lead stories, Apple buys Eastern Europe, pigs learn to fly in Hecklerville, and Hades freezes over. But first, we go to Bob Four Apples out in the field. Bob? What the? Thanks, Bob. Now, with some breaking news, is Chester Fields. Chester? Thanks, board. Tonight, we bring you a podcaster's anguished cry for help. As you know, podcasting is hard work. For example, take the Nasillacast. Fifteen years of dedication and sacrifice, and yet, bringing this trove of information each and every week exacts a cost. A financial cost. Listeners can help by contributing what they can by becoming a Patreon member at podfeet.com forward slash Patreon, or make a one-time donation through PayPal at podfeet.com forward slash PayPal. Board? Thanks, Chester. Now here's tomorrow's weather with Melanie. Melanie? Yeah, uh, you really don't want to know. Thanks, Melanie. Well, from all of us here, we're going to go home 
watch some TV while eating potato chips in her underwear, and not off on the couch. Good night. Well, it's that time of the week again. It is time for Security Bits with Bart Bouchat. How are you today, Bart? I am doing just fine. Um, summer has decided to go on holidays, unfortunately. So for the first time in weeks, I got wet on my cycle today. But yeah, I'll live. Oh, well, I think it came to my house. It's 85 degrees out. I hope the fan noise isn't too bad. I've got it up on five because I am just sweltering in my office right now. Oh, no. I can't, I can't hear it, but I, I have the audio ability of... I don't know, some sort of post or something. Not someone who should do that. <laughs> okay. Steph as a doorpost, isn't that the old phrase? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think I have the audio ability of a doorpost. <laughs> All right, well, let's get stuck in. Yeah, so it's obviously summer because it's been three weeks since we did a security bits. And I was expecting, when I opened up my RSS reader this morning, I was expecting to find I had a lot of work to do. Turns out it's quite a short one, actually. But hey, you know, still plenty to talk about. Um, so starting up with some follow-ups. Um, for once, the exposure notification contact tracing update contains 100% good news. What? I know. Starting off in the United States of America, Virginia has become the first U.S. state to release an app using the Google Apple API, wow. shortly followed by North Dakota, Wyoming, and Alabama. So that brings it up to four out of 50. But hey, <laughs> it was zero. It's four more than last time, right? <laughs> exactly. Meanwhile, the friends on the other side of Ireland over in the United Kingdom are also making good progress. England is rolling out to test a beta version of its new Apple Google based app on the Isle of Wight, which is where their first app went to die. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know what the Isle of Wight has done to earn itself as the test bed for the English COVID app, but uh, I think they're in a much better place this time because they have a former Apple engineer developing their app and... Uh, well, it's amazing the press release um, and the press statement how effusive the praise of Apple was coming from the same health minister who blamed Apple for life, the universe, and everything just a few weeks ago. But anyway, uh, last month's Twitter hack. Then we had we talked about last time. Uh, there's been a few developments since uh, Twitter updated their blog post. We're now a lot more. They didn't go into complete detail. They didn't like tell us exactly what happened probably to make it harder for it to happen again. Um, but we do now know that it was entirely an attack on the squishy organic bits um, <laughs> and quite sophisticated, basically noodling their way in, learning about more humans involved in the chain and then attacking those humans. So, you know, a, a determined and detailed attack. I guess not entirely surprising. And also, three people have been charged with the Twitter hacking, including a Florida from T, or a teen from Florida, uh, who is in jail. So hey, that's nice. It is. There should be consequences for such things. Cybercrime is still crime. Uh, after a year of trying to find a buyer for Have I Been Pwned, Troy Hunt has uh, changed horses quite dramatically. His blog post says it all, really. I'm open sourcing Have I Been Pwned code base. Really? Oh, wow. Yep. 
So not trying to sell it. It is now a community project. And I think that is absolutely wonderful that, it, that to have Have I Been Pwned be a community-driven um, resource, I think, is probably the best thing that could have happened. Yeah, I kind like that better, don't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. As as the recent beneficiary of community, I, I have a very <laughs> strong feeling towards communities. Um, it's no, definitely, I think it's healthier for it not to belong to any any one company because it's now powering so much. It's it's good to have a neutral ground. Yeah, that's great. Indeed. Meanwhile, social media continue to tackle the abuses on their platform. Um, mostly good news in this section. Uh, or maybe I put the bad news down in notable news. Um, <laughs> WhatsApp are adding some new features to make it easier to find the actual news related to forwarded posts and stuff. So if a post contains a link, there's a little magnifying glass icon to help you track down more information about the link. So I guess the idea is make it easier for you to do your own research when someone sends you on something that makes you go, yeah, is that real? So, you know, every real helps. Can't do so- any harm. WhatsApp's owned by Facebook, too? Is that right? They are, I believe, yes. Huh. It's Facebook, WhatsApp, it's, and Instagram. It's so very three. interesting how the three different things are different varying levels of evil, right? Like, Facebook, still yeah, have... you can lie if you're a politician, and then WhatsApp's over here trying to debunk ho- hoaxes. But see, Facebook also talks out of both sides of its mouth, because it's like, we're doing all these things to prevent disinformation, apart from for you guys. There's not even consistency within a single product. Um, it's because there was a story that I threw in the bin because I just didn't think it was worthy of uh, of putting in. But apparently, there was a, a a report done and it showed that in order to avoid being accused of being biased, Facebook were easing the rules on a conservative uh, Looney Tune stuff. Right, basically. Like, you know, the facts appear to have a bias one way. And yeah, anyway, so yeah, I didn't bother putting it in the notes because it's not really security news. Right, right. Uh, meanwhile, Therima, who are one of the extreme, like if you are really serious about end-to-end encryption, Threema is one of those apps that is definitely something you want to consider because Threema uses... Um, it lets you manage the keys so you can be extremely sure that it it really is end-to-end encrypted. I mean, with Facebook Messenger, the actual encryption algorithm is superb, uh, but the keys are managed on your behalf. So if there's something wrong with the key management, it doesn't matter how good the algorithm is. And the same with iMessages, where Apple manages the keys, and we trust Apple to manage the keys, but we are trusting Apple to manage the keys. Whereas with Threema, you have none of the ease of use of having someone else manage your keys and all of the security of you managing your own keys. <laughs> well, now you can use that level of security to do video calls with full end-to-end encryption. So that's a nice step so, forward for but, journalists. But that's so end-to-end encrypted video calls in an app called Threema that you say you do have to manage your own keys, right? Correct. So Telegram just added end-to-end encrypted video calls. They did, but Telegram, I don't manage the keys. Telegram is managing the keys. Right, but they're also doing it by spreading it across servers in different countries of different political stances. So all of those countries would have to agree and get together and say, yes, we are going to give up these keys. 
Mm, I don't think that's... I'm quoting mm. them. I just no, I, I, I happen to have it's, just written it up. Uh, so I, that's I know, I know. It's um, I mean, it's a it's it's an interesting way around. But you're still trusting them that they're doing yes. what they're saying. Oh yeah, extremely. absolutely. Not like it, it, it is a different approach. It's basically, would you like usability, and entrust the job, the chore of managing keys to someone else? And I do like Telegram's approach. It's it's a clever idea. It's just like. Well, what if this basket is rickety? Well, let's spread every egg across multiple baskets at the same time. Right. And and they said if all of those different countries all together said, yes, we want to give this up, then whatever was on in there, that was a really bad thing. And so that probably should be given up. You know, actually, and that was actually another very good point. Yeah. It's like if particularly if they've chosen their countries well, if you know, if you're in a situation where, say, Iceland, who are extremely pro-privacy and the United Arab Emirates and the United States of America, if those three countries have to agree on something, it, it, it's <laughs> right. got to be pretty egregious, right? Right, right. I wouldn't trust it just in the United States. I'm just having to say here. So it's kind of nice to see it spread. I think it's a nice compromise. It, it, again, if you're managing the keys yourself, then it's up to you to do a good job with it. Yeah. It, no, it's a very interesting approach, actually. It, it's uh, I, I like their originality, actually, on that one, because uh, I caught my ear when you described the Telegram stuff in last week's show. Yeah. 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 I was nervous doing that one because I know there's been concern about their security model, but I, I, I think yeah, I got it. I, it. Pretty much. Basically, they. what I don't think you quite said it the way I would have said it, but that's, I don't think you said anything wrong, um, just, just in case you think. But I, I think we're, we're t- in my mind, the criticism of Telegram is that they made a very poor decision, which bit them a few times over the years. They rolled their own crypto and you really shouldn't. You should really rely because designing crypto is hard, which is why they got bitten a few times. So in their and, in their latest update, though, they said that the, they've open sourced it, which I didn't know last week. Right, but that's still... It's still their own. It's still the wrong way around, yeah. But, I mean, but, okay, you, can, but you can look at it now. Yeah, which means that the cryptographers can now retroactively tell them what they've got wrong. Whereas if you go the other way around and you start with open algorithms that have been really heavily hammered by the crypto community, that's a much stronger bed to build on. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is why actually the, I mean, the algorithm that underpins everything Facebook is doing and everything that, um, oh, the, the, ah, the really famous one that's very secure as well, whose name completely eludes me now. Sugar. I hate, I should never go off, off script. <laughs> um, basically, there's one open source algorithm that's being used to power all sorts of commercial and non-commercial ones, but it's really, really well trusted. So it, it, it's such a wonderful foundation to build on. Signal. That's what I was signal. thinking. Of, the signal. Yeah, and I said that in the in my article. I said, yeah. you know, if you're a head of state or a protester in a terrifying place, then maybe you want to look at Signal. But for my use, yeah. And when you say Signal, you mean the Signal app. Just to, yes. to be clear for the listeners, right? Because yes. Signal is a protocol which is used by Facebook. Oh. So Telegram uh, and WhatsApp, they're all using the Signal protocol, but they're using Signal with the keys managed by Facebook on your behalf. Whereas when you install wait, wait, the you know, Telegram, Telegram is not use Telegram is not no, Telegram rolled their own crypto, and I wish they had gone with Signal. Okay, I'm but, getting really confused. What you said then? Okay, what what right. were the two you said were being managed? Facebook was managing the 
the uh, WhatsApp and uh, Facebook Messenger. Ah, okay. I think you said Telegram, or I heard Telegram. Oops. Got you. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So the difference between the actual Signal app and Facebook Messenger, they're both using the same protocol, but the 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 the, the app, uh, the direct Signal app, makes you manage the keys. Yeah. Whereas right. with uh, with Facebook's products, they manage the keys. Right. And it's a pain in the backside to manage your own keys. But if you are a journalist or a lawyer for freedom fighters or whatever, that's really well spent effort. And you now know you have really good secure communication. So anyway, it's, it's all positive developments. Good. Uh, I don't know whether this is positive or negative, so I stuck it in the middle. Uh, <laughs> Facebook has apparently started the process of merging the Instagram and Facebook Messenger backends, which is why I know they both use the Signal protocol. Hmm. Um, so The Verge are reporting that their reporters have started to get a pop-up on the latest version of the apps, basically telling them your identities are merging. Hmm. I distinctly remember them telling the European Union not to worry when they bought mm, um, Instagram. Instagram. Never do that. Yep. It seems like an odd time to be doing it when I, I don't know about you, but it seems the wind seems to be blowing towards you're going to have to give that back up. It, maybe yeah, they, maybe they're trying to interlink it so as fast as they can so that they can go, oh, it's going to be really hard to pull yeah, apart. We can't split that up anymore. It's completely intertwined. We can't unscramble this egg. Yeah. Right. Mm, yeah, either way, it seems a bit tone deaf, but on, on route <laughs> it appears to be. Then in the United States, uh, you guys apparently have some sort of election-y thing coming up. Apparently. I heard something about that, yeah. Lots of developments there. So Snapchat um, are working on adding voting tools to be ready for September, which is only a few weeks away. So the idea is they'll have various tools to help people find out true information about how to actually vote, which is useful. It's not vote through Snapchat yet. No, <laughs> I don't think that would be useful. Um, Facebook are have launched, in fact, their voting information center. And this is very practical sort of stuff. In your state, how do you register to vote by mail? When do you have to do it by? Those mm. kind of deep down practical things. And you'd imagine that that wouldn't be needed. But an awful lot of misinformation around voting is not trying to trick you into voting for someone else or basically you know, fake news. It's trying to trick you into voting in the wrong place or voting in the wrong time or mm. missing a deadline. So the actual bareface facts of this is how you living in Alabama or in Pennsylvania or wherever you happen to live, this is how you vote is actually really powerful information. So I, I really like that Facebook is doing that. Yeah. And and I think, you know, you might say, well, you know, that, that uh, information is available through the government websites, but you need to have the information where people are and people are mm -hmm. on Facebook, whether we like it or not. And so if you have the information there, I wonder how you run into it. It'll be interesting to see. It's probably yeah, flashed I, up and I missed it. I was going to say, you're more likely to see it than, well, for two reasons, you're more likely to see me than me. I don't have a Facebook account, which makes it very <laughs> unlikely I'm going to see it. But even if I did, I don't have an American Facebook account. So right. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't see it. Yeah, uh, interesting. Whereas you should get California information. Um, and 
like we say, you know, talking at both sides of the mouth sometimes, Facebook and Twitter did both actually take action against uh, misinformation about the coronavirus f- posted by the Trump campaign and actually did take down the tweets. Uh, I think in Twitter's case, they blocked access to posting until they took down their own tweet and Facebook took down a post. So it's not consistent, but there is movement. Yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting because they had they had definitely said you can lie if you want to if you're a politician. But when it was a public health crisis lie, they said, yeah, no, you can't have that. Yeah, because they, they have both said politicians, we can't censor politicians because they need to be able to freely speak about politics. And it is absolutely unacceptable to spread misinformation about a pandemic. And those two came into direct conflict when a politician spread misinformation about the pandemic. Yeah. And then the question in my mind was, OK, so which of those two things are you going to rank more highly? And I am um, I have to say, I think pandemic winning is, in my opinion, the right way to treat with that. Yeah, I mean, I don't even agree you should let politicians lie in the first place. But if we take that as a given, I still think pandemic wins. So uh, I was pleased. Good. Meanwhile, first and only deep dive, I guess you can edit the show notes and take the number one out. There never was a number two. Um so there's a whole bunch of stories about an unpatchable bug in the secure enclave on iOS devices. And that is true. But it has a fire extinguisher icon because while that is true, it is also not as bad as it sounds. Oh, good. Because my first so, read of it was a wooga. Right. They are the word secure enclave, bug and unpatchable. They're not. Sounds like a bad they're thing. Not, yeah, not good. Not good. But it's OK. So security researchers announced that they have found some problems with how older versions of the Secure Enclave from the A11 and earlier uh, handle memory management. Um, so it's, it's a bug in basically some bits of memory should only be accessible by the Secure Enclave, but due to a bug, some of that memory can leak to the normal CPU running on the iPhone. And that shouldn't be possible. Uh, now, in order for that to be useful to an attacker, they need to get kernel level access to the operating system running on the iPhone to be able to then trick the secure enclave into accidentally putting secret information into the wrong parts of memory. Let me let me stop for one really quick second. I just want to say anybody who's listening, A11 was the one they put in the iPhone 8, 8, uh, 8 Plus, and the 10. Yes. So if you have an 11 on up, you're you're okay. But a lot of people have iPhone 8s and, and, and 10, so... What's the most recent iPhone? Because there's a 12 11? and a 13. The iPhone then 11? Then I must go back to the 10. The 10 must be okay too. No, the 10 has the has the uh, A11 in it. So what is the A12? I don't know. I'm reading the Wikipedia article. Yeah, because like if A11 and A, sorry, A12 and A13 to me says two years. You know, A13, might, well, that was 2017. So there was the 10S. That's what we're forgetting. Ah, there we go. That's what we're missing. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I, I never owned one of those. That's, that's so it doesn't <laughs> exist. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I want to make sure people no. knew whether how panicky to be. Yeah. Well, even if you own one of those phones, you still shouldn't be too panicky, because the iPhone, of course, has long. One of the strengths of iOS as security is that it's not one giant big wall followed by nothing. It's layer upon layer upon layer of security. So it is. Not good that in these older A series chips that there is this problem in one of the layers, right? So the onion has a faulty layer in the middle of it. 
but all the other layers are still there. Oh. And the, what that actually ends up meaning is that the only way to get at this problem is to intercept the secure boot process. And the only way to intercept the secure boot process is to have physical access to the phone at the point in time it's booting. So there is no remote exploitation of this problem. Good. It, it, it only comes into being if someone with some fairly advanced equipment and knowledge, etc., has physical access to your phone. So crossing borders as a high-profile person would definitely be a danger area. But short of that, actually, there's not really much going on here. So they actually so, have to have certain kinds of equipment to do this too? Right, because you need to plug that phone physically into a device that has the appropriate exploit code, none of which has been released. Oh, so you, okay. So you'd, you'd have to be a, a, a an advanced enough actor to either rediscover the problem or to have somehow gotten access to it because maybe you independently discovered it or something and you've been keeping it secret and the security... I mean, that often happens, right? The same problem is discovered by more than one group. And if one of those groups is the CIA or whatever, they're not going to tell anyone. And then later, you know, some someone else discovers it, maybe a white hat person, and they tell Apple or whatever. So it's possible that there are others out there who know the secret, but it's it's closely guarded. It's not it's not widely known. And the security researchers actually released extremely little information. Um, some. Some people are speculating it's because they want to remain eligible for Apple's fairly juicy bug bounty program. Okay. And others are speculating, yeah, but on the black market, this thing could be worth quite a bit. So take your pick. But either way, they're not spilling a lot of beans here. So bottom line, unless you're an extremely high value target who is going to be out of physical control of their device, this just isn't relevant to you. If you are a high value target, then buy a new iPhone with an A12 or an A13 chip, and this isn't relevant to you either. So from Auga Auga, we're basically at probably doesn't matter. If it does matter, very easy fix. So, you know, compared yeah. to the headline, phew. I'm glad to to have gotten more information from you on this than exactly what we have in the show notes. I've been chatting with STM in, the, um, in our Slack group, podfeet.com slash Slack, where I said it's a very low probability this would happen to you. And he says, well, why do you say it's a low probability? What, you know, why is that? And so I was listing all the things that had to be true with because he was saying, I've got an old phone, therefore my probability is really high. And one of the things I pointed out in, in this diatribe I've written back to him is probabilities have to be multiplied. So you have to have an old phone. You have to also lose control of this old phone. If you have an old phone and you haven't lost it yet, why do you think there's a high probability you will lose it? Well, let's give that medium. But and you have to lose it specifically where someone finds it who is a hacker. And mm -hmm. that hacker has to know that only these older phones have the vulnerability. And the hacker who finds the phone has to have the right equipment to do the hack. And the exploit code hasn't been released. So they'd have to have independently discovered it. So very close to 0% chance. <laughs> Precisely. And they all multiply together to every single hurdle the attacker has. I mean, that's also why Apple's approach of having an onion of security is so powerful. Because in order to go from, I have found a, say, a memory leak or something in Safari to I have control of your phone, you need to find that first bug gets you 
to run arbitrary code within Safari, but Safari is completely sandboxed. So, okay, then you find another bug, which is a sandbox escape. So you're now one layer further out the onion. But now Safari is running at a low priority user. So you still haven't gotten any further. Saying so you need to find another bug to do a privilege escalation. And then you have privilege escalation. Then you realize that the entire system stuff is completely locked down using the new system integrity protection. So now you need to find a bug in that. Right. And that onion really, really multiplies and multiplies. So the probability that you can get all the way through is massively reduced at every every layer of the onion, which is why pwn to own, you'll often see seven, five, six, seven bug chains needed to actually exploit the iPhone. And then only which one is, of those has to be fixed for the whole thing exactly. to fall over in a heap, right? Yeah, and, because, and, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it, it's a good design. And again, it, it's the fact that Apple don't put all of the regs in any one basket is the reason why these kind of vulnerabilities are not as bad as they seem usually because you generally speaking need a full chain of exploits, a whole bunch of things to be true. So defense in depth really does work. Cool. Action alerts. Uh, there is a critical security update in uh, Grub2, the open source bootloader used in lots and lots of Linux distros. Mm. Um, now, you do kind of need physical access to the machine to make use of it. It's probably not a gigantic... I don't know, was this a physical access one or was this that you needed to have root access? I. You needed a, an exploit chain again on this one. Um, but the update's there, so... The update's there, yeah. Uh, it has a cool name. It's called Boot Hole. Um, and the, it has a little icon of a boot with a hole in it and a little worm sticking out. Very cute. <laughs> Um, I, I really like that Naked Security calls it a, a jaunty logo. <laughs> jaunty, that's a good word. I don't use that, don't use that word often enough. Uh -huh. So basically, patchy, patchy, patch, patch. Um, but for home users, not something to stress about. But if I was running AWS or something, I'd want to be sure my booting was secure. But, yeah. yeah. Oh, they also refer to it as cheeky. <laughs> cheeky. Oh. They had a lot of fun with this one. Oh, but it's, uh, yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. And actually, it's kind of an interesting story because they found one bug. And that sort of the, the, before they disclosed that one bug, the community sort of all looked at each other and went, that's a really basic problem. If they made one of those, what's the chances they didn't make any similar mistakes in the rest of the code base? And they actually audited the entire Grub2 code base, found six or seven other bugs, and then released a patch and notified the world responsibly all at the same time. Excellent, excellent. I did just double check, and it uh, requires root access, not physical access. Root access, that was it. I knew yeah. there was there was an elevation of some sort needed. Yeah. So, yeah. Patch Tuesday has been and gone. Critical updates from Microsoft and Adobe. Um, Microsoft is obviously Windows stuff. Some scary IE ones in particular. And Adobe, we have Acrobat Reader and Lightroom getting some TLC, some security TLC. Apple have also released a bunch of OS updates, uh, which, as well as containing features, are all security updates. So when your Apple device asks you if you'd like to install that security update, yes, you would. What is the answer? <laughs> yeah. I'm going to have just talked about, uh, when people listen to this, I will have just talked about the new security camera from uh, Wise, the Wise Outdoor Cam. And I kind of playfully say, you know, after you run the update, guess what you do next? You run a security update. And I try to explain, yes, be happy. You want an IoT yeah. device that requires you to do a security security updates often. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, there's no security update. That shouldn't make you happy. 
<laughs> but it is a little bit, as I say in, in the article, it is a little bit like getting a new remote control car for your birthday and being told, no, you have to sit and wait until the till the battery charges. Yeah. Ah, those were the days. <laughs> uh, Lego we, didn't need it. That is true. It was the only problem I had with Lego was that all of my uncles all suddenly discovered their inner child and wanted to build my Lego. <laughs> Gosh darn it, it's my Lego. I want to build my Lego. Anyway. For, Forbes got some Lego for his birthday and I may have been building those. You may ones. have you may have played the role of Bart's uncles. Yeah. <laughs> oh, such a great toy. Anyway. Um Windows users of iCloud also got a security update from Apple. So I never is... thought about the fact that there's iCloud on Windows. Of course there must be. Yeah, so it's a little oh. sort of standalone app that, that that just takes care of the folder syncing and the calendar syncing yeah. and all those kind of little things. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. And so they get some security love. Okay, good. In terms of worthy warnings, um, the U.S. tax service are basically saying if you want to keep your taxes safe and not have someone file a fraudulent tax rebate on your behalf and steal money that you then end up owing the government, quote, 2FA is a must. Probably good advice. Do they actually offer 2FA? I do believe they now do at long, 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 long last. Okay, good. Details, as I say, it's a naked security story, so details in the show notes. I didn't read it in the world's greatest amount of detail because I'm not a U.S. taxpayer. Right, right. I, I want to read the ending of it, though, because it's really well written. It says, the ending of the article on naked security about this, it says, We found 2FA to be a bit like seatbelts and bicycle helmets. At first, they're all kind of annoying to use, and you feel a bit as though they're a vote of no confidence that assumes you will fall rather than backing you to succeed. After a while, though, they don't just feel acceptable, but highly desirable because the effort involved in using them is close to zero and you start to feel naked without them. Yeah, amen to that. The, the, the very thought of my feet touching pedals with a bare head feels... <laughs> shudders, right? Right, it's approximately the same as closing my front door and feeling a breeze around my nether regions. It's like, ah! <laughs> I forgot something important. I feel that way with seatbelts. I feel like I'm going to fall up. Yeah, I get my yeah. car to oh, back my car well, into the yeah. driveway to, to uh, uh, you know, just to wash it. And it's everything I could do to keep myself from putting on my seatbelt to go that far. You know, I'm going like eight feet. By pure, by, I, I laughed at myself about three days ago when I was mowing the lawn and I needed to move the car like six feet. Without thinking about it, I put my seatbelt on. Yeah. I sort of laughed. Anyway, yeah, yeah no, you're Tufay, once, once you have a password manager, I would agree it's it's close to zero effort. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's not just, I mean, one password is a superb job, of it, but the other ones are all catching up. It is becoming the expected behavior of yeah. a password manager, which is great. This is how we want it to be. Right. Moving on to some notable news. Um, we sort of kind of mentioned this idea before. Um, do you remember the last time there was a big rocket launch? There was a bunch of YouTube channels taken over, turned into fake space related channels that were oh. hawking a bitcoin scheme i didn't know about that you probably told me but i don't remember we, we talked about it then and at that stage it was kind of a huh that's interesting but it's become a lot more than a one-off thing mm. there's an active campaign going on at the moment targeting high profile yeah youtube streams channels sorry mm. and so the idea is that the attackers piggyback on people's fame to just steal their followers 
And then they, I mean, they're really good at this. They take over the channel, they hide all the videos, they replace it with a Bitcoin scam. And because Bitcoin is pseudonymous, you can see how they do. And they're making thousands of dollars worth of Bitcoin out of this scheming. And what's particularly frustrating is that unlike Twitter, who responded really promptly to a hack a few weeks ago, YouTube do not appear to be capable or willing to respond to this. I, I don't know if it's that their reliance on automation has meant they can't yeah. or that no one thinks that YouTubers are important enough to bother. I don't know. Um, but either way, they have been found utterly flat-footed here. Utterly flat-footed. So it's continuing to expand? Oh, they're doing all sorts of terrible things. Like There was um, one case where a guy lost his channel, lost a whole bunch of money after two weeks of faffing around, finally managed to get his channel back. And then one of his attempts to reach out for help finally achieved something and they blocked his account in an abundance of precaution because apparently it had been reported as having been hacked. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. Like, mm. terrible, terrible stuff. Uh, if you like reading, there's a really good article that goes into detail on iMore. If you like listening, there's an entire episode of the Checklist podcast, which basically they interviewed the guy who wrote the iMore article, Stephen Warwick. Uh, so you can either hear him explain it to Ken Ray or you can read him explain it on iMore. But either way, Stephen has all the details and he also is the one who broke the story. He interviewed oh, wow. the YouTube Plus, so. Ken Ray. Am I right? Plus Ken. I like, I like having Ken. Ken's a good extractor of information from security people he, yeah. he plays the same role you play uh, actually yeah um, I, I remember when he first started with uh, with it talking to him about well but you don't know much about security he goes i know that's why i'm perfect for this job <laughs> so yep. he knows a lot more than he used to that's for sure he does which actually made him even better because whenever he senses an assumption being made he can step right in there and say now explain that again you know, yeah so it's, yeah um Microsoft have launched a new product they're calling Microsoft Family Safety. It's basically, it uses the same underlying APIs as corporate mobile device management, but it's packaged up as a way for families to manage kids' devices and deploy parental controls, as opposed to for corporations to manage corporately owned devices. Oh, that's smart. It's very smart, uh, and that has launched for both Android and iOS. So, you know, that's, that's a useful tool to have. Oh, Wait, oh, I assume this for, was for Microsoft Windows. No. no Does Microsoft do Windows anymore? It seems like all their cool stuff is everything else, right? It, it feels like Windows is just an, oh yeah, and, which I actually really like. Yeah, uh, because everything else you're doing is awesome. Yeah, I've become a big, big Microsoft user and I don't have any Windows. Yeah, I mean, get I don't feel like, yeah, I don't feel a second-class citizen. I feel like... A first-class user of a, of a top-class cloud service. Yeah. And I get to use my devices, which is how I like it. Well, I'm glad to see this. Android and iOS. Microsoft Family Safety App. Yeah. Nifty. Yep. Yeah. Uh, last past then. <laughs> it's got app limits on, my, on Minecraft is one of the screenshots. They own Minecraft. <laughs> they do own Minecraft, too. Yeah, which is, I always thought that was a very interesting purchase. But I would have put yeah. it down as a minimum. Like, you got to do at least 30 minutes a day on Minecraft. Keep your mind moving. Yeah. <laughs> Inverse parental controls. <laughs> I guess it's sort of the Lego of uh, computer games. Oh, yeah. Someone built a full-size replica of the Enterprise D in Minecraft. Jeez. There's anyway, people writing code up. inside Minecraft with 
bricks. I mean, I don't even understand that. There's like people have written clocks and stuff. Very huh. cool. I don't know how that works. That's interesting. Okay, uh, last pass then. Continuing this our, our whole concept of all of these password managers are nudging each other forward. Well, last pass will now proactively manage or monitor for breaches. And I'm assuming one of the databases powering this is going to be how I've been pwned. Oh, uh, yeah. So they'll proactively notify you if one of your passwords has been caught up in a breach that's known about. So, oh, yeah, that's a huge advantage of Have I Been Pwned being open source is then slapping it in the last pass is just obvious, right? Because do they yeah. use it yet? Well, LastPass do now, and I think 1Password's Watchtower, I think, is powered no. by... No, 1Password's done it for a long time, a couple of years. Yes. Right, so last, that's the announcement here. LastPass are now doing proactive breach monitoring. Okay, I didn't know LastPass was using Have I Been Pwned. Awesome. No, I'm sorry. No, that, okay, that, I was saying I presume it's okay. from the last from the Have I Been Pwned database. Um, okay. But regardless of where their data is coming from, the fact that this is now becoming a standard feature in, in the, you know contender password managers is good yeah um, absolutely top tips very interesting article from brian krebs i thought it was worthy of drawing our audience's attention to um so it's called why and where you should plant your flag and by planting your flag what he means is proactively going out and creating online accounts because the temptation might be well, if I don't create an online account for my bank account, then it can't be hacked because I didn't create it. But annoyingly, one of the easiest things, it's much easier to create an account than to take over an account. Sure. And so by not making your own online account for, say, Inland Revenue or something or the IRS or whatever, it's actually easier for identity thieves to become you if you haven't become yourself. And so he breaks it down into different aspects of life and then tells you sort of what the crown jewels are. So you absolutely need to protect certain things and you should plant your flag, create the account, enable 2FA. And if you don't want to use it, don't use it, but huh. do create your account and enable 2FA. Because that's safer yeah. than not going online. Huh. Do you, are you going to do that with a Facebook account, Bart? I uh, no. <laughs> because Facebook is so good at telling everyone you exist on Facebook, and then you just get flooded with people going, well, I messaged you on Facebook. <laughs> I did try that once. I did, I did briefly yeah. have a Facebook account, and it convinced and me that I had been showering writing. ever since, right? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I was like, okay, well, I thought this was going to be a terrible idea. Yep. Yep. Um... Excellent explainers, then. I thought there was one good article over in Intigo. How to send files securely? Not a bad question to have answered. So this is one of those links that I now have bookmarked under a for reference. Um, and whenever someone asks me, uh, what are my options? I just go to Pocket and pull this out and give it to them. So I have a whole bunch of useful links in Pocket for stuff like that. And this one was added to it this week. So I thought I'd share. Nice. How to send files securely. Nice. Uh, on a whole different level, interesting insights. So these are high quality detailed articles. Ars Technica have a fascinating insight into Apple's machine learning and how their approach differs. And a lot of that revolves around privacy, which is why I thought it was worth mentioning on Security Bits. I'm only about halfway through reading the article because it is long and detailed, but it's a fascinating insight to how Apple are thinking about these things. And 
Apple are using a lot of machine learning hmm. in good ways. So Cool. Yeah, and that's... I remember when that was a big deal that they started actually being allowed to publish stuff. That that was a huge change for them because they used to do it all in secret and that meant that they were never attracting any really good talent because leading scientists publish. That, that is, there is nothing more beaten into you as a researcher than, I mean, we, the phrase in the, indus, in the industry is not quite the right word, in the community is publish or perish. Mm. And so why would you go to Apple where the rule is no publish? So as soon as they changed it, where they were actually owning the fact that they have amazing researchers and letting them publish and letting them go to conferences and letting them, you know, publish things in journals, that really changed things for the better. Very cool. Yes. So finally, some palate cleansing. Although, to be honest, it wasn't too bad today, actually. No, it wasn't. I'm not that depressed. Maybe we should save these for a bad week, <laughs> Oh, there's always cool stuff coming through my RSS feed. Um, I love astronomy picture of the day. And a lot of the times it's what you expect, right? Pictures of, taken by the Hubble Space Telescope of really cool, shiny stuff in space. But sometimes they they go a little bit left afield the way you might expect. And uh, they published a really interesting post, which is a version of the periodic table like I had never quite even conceived of before. So it shows all of the elements in their usual arrangement, but they're colored in oddly. And each some elements are all one color and some elements are, you know, different ratios of different colors. And what the colors represent is how those elements were created. So oh, wow. everything made by the Big Bang is in blue. Everything made by exploding massive stars or supernovae, as I call them, is in yellow. Uh, merging neutron stars are purple. Cosmic ray fission is red. Exploding white dwarfs is white. Can't be much of that going on. Actually, there's quite a bit of that going on. Fe, that's uh, ferrite, is iron. Iron, it's right. Kind of yeah. So that's partially from ma exploding massive stars and exploding white dwarfs. Wow. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Uh, where's gold? Where's AU? It's AU for gold, isn't it? Argentum. Let's see if it's... I know my Latin names, but I don't know the shape of the periodic table well enough uh, to find it. Isn't that terrible? Yeah. And it's an it's image. Metal. Oh, man. So it's not accessible either. Well, that's... Yeah, so it's a, it's a metal, so it should be on the right. Right? Uh, no, it should be in the middle. Oh, I'm so bad at chemistry. That's unfortunate. This is... Uh, yeah, this is an image. AU79. Uh, purple. Merging neutron stars and a little bit of dying low mass stars. Huh. I'm going to go find the original link to the... Uh, oh, there it is. The Wikipedia article and see whether that's actually a... Uh, no, no, it's an SVG. Well, poop. Uh -huh. Maybe I can find is, it. I'll keep looking. Yeah, that, that, I mean, that is the kind of thing that should be accessible, right? It's just data. It doesn't yeah. have to be in this format. Yeah. That is really, really cool, though. Yeah, it is only, kind of I only want to use elements that come from cosmic ray fission. <laughs> well, you can have some beryllium. That seems to be entirely made of cosmic ray fission. Oh, and boron. <laughs> you appear to be starting with a B to become cosmic ray fission. Beryllium and boron and a teeny tiny amount of lithium. <laughs> that is really cool. Okay, my turn? Yes, yes, so... This is deep, nerdy stuff. Uh, so what do you got? <laughs> well, I've picked this one just for Bart. 
uh, I found this title or this uh, this tweet that said, breaking news, Macmillan Online Dictionary now includes over 50 emoji. And uh, these were carefully selected by lexicographer Jane Solomon. And uh, the idea is, do you see emoji where you don't know exactly what they mean or whether you're using Mm. it in the wrong way? Like the example they give is the heart emoji with the little dot underneath. And it's uh, it has specific meaning, meaning an exclamation point of extreme joy and excitement on top of your love of whatever this thing is. So you can look up uh, uh, emoji and find out what they mean. It's only 50 of them, but still. Well, right, but, uh, you know, a lot of emoji just, you know, they are what they mean. Like, you know, the bicycle is the bicycle, the car is the car. But a lot of emoji are not what you think. Yeah, yeah, or have some subtlety to it. So I think it's, it's kind of nifty. Yeah, it's good to see dictionaries sort of joining the 21st century like that. I, I, I approve. When I was talking to Bart about this before, before I, we decided to put it in here, you said, you said you were a curmudgeon on the topic for a long time. Oh, I was, I was one of those people who did, didn't get emoji. I mean, what can you do with an emoji that I can't do with a colon and a roundy bracket or whatever? But I've completely changed my mind. I I think it's since I installed Rocket and now they can actually easily access emoji. I, I think that's yes. sort of Rocket me. is a, uh, is that how you're doing it? Okay, so Rocket is a menu bar app for Mac OS that lets you, you type colon and then whatever it is you want. So I type colon face and facepalm comes up first. That's how I can so often write facepalm for dumb things I've done. <laughs> yeah, because Apple's emoji picker, like it's, it's control command space brings up Apple's emoji picker, which if you happen to know which category the emoji you want is in, which is OK for stuff like, you know, a star or whatever, they're, they're with nature. But it's really hard to find the right one in that stupid Apple emoji picker, although apparently there is a search box coming for us in uh, 11, Mac OS 11. No, it's in there right now. I just did it. I just type face. Oh, I didn't okay. know. I didn't know. Control Command Space brought up the emoji picker. Oh, it doesn't focus the search. Maybe that's what makes me cranky about it. Yeah, well, I've never understood that. Apple never likes that. Have you noticed that? Like, if you go to search in the App Store, you click on the little magnifying glass. Your focus is not in the search box. I think and what else be, are you going to search for? I, I think that should be against the law. I really do. I think there should be a global law against that. That's one of my. I hate that. Well, it should be against the HIG at the very least. <laughs> the HIG? The human human interface guidelines. Right, right. Yeah. Anyway, no, this, this is cool. I, I utterly approve of having emoji in the dictionary. They are definitely a part of modern expression. 20 years from now, you will not understand the writings of modern teenagers unless you understand the meaning of emoji. <laughs> and nerds like Bart. And people like me. <laughs> All right, Bart. Well, like uh, like you said, this was a kind of a fun fun little episode. I'm smiling, which isn't what normally happens at the end of Security Bits. I normally want to go shoot myself. Well, fingers crossed the, the bad guys stay on holidays. Maybe they're enjoying the sun or whatever. And uh, regardless of how quiet the bad guys have been, my advice still remains. Stay patched so you stay secure. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Remember, everything good starts with podfeet.com. Listen to Frank. Go to podfeet.com slash Patreon to become a patron of the Podfeet podcast. If you want to do a one-time donation, podfeet.com slash PayPal. Want to join our Facebook community? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Would you rather be on Slack? Podfeet.com slash Slack. 
And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, like Aaliyah did for the first time this week, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Kevin may even behave himself. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.